This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks for taking the time to join us on today. And as always, I like to take special time to greet those who are listening for the very first time. Today, we're going to air part two of a conversation that I had with Karen Lynn. Very enlightening, very energetic conversation. I love what my guests bring to the table. Great stuff that people need to hear in this age where there's all types of information all over the place and lots of misinformation I'm very happy and proud to bring you something that's important to hear, something that's needful to hear. And today in this session where we actually had to cut our sale, we were going to cover four questions. We ended up just covering three, but we're going to cover a topic that's very near and dear to Karen's heart. And that is something called tech supremacy. We hear about all types of different supremacy. This one's a little different. So stick around so you can hear what Karen is going to refer to and what she means by tech supremacy. Ready? Let's go ahead and dive in. Topic number three, and, and we get to speed up now because these are mostly uh, Karen topics. So Darren, Darren gets to be quiet for the most part on some of these. Sure. How does tech supremacy play out in the workplace? And I know you got to explain what tech supremacy is for some folks. Yeah. So um, I guess just to back up a little bit, uh, IAC 22 was this past summer. I submitted a poster session for it that got accepted. And and really the premise was the, the question that I wanted to pose to the participants was how, how does supremacy play out in the tech industry? Whether it's in the workplace or, you know, whether we see it as end users of technology systems, apps, websites, whatever it is, um, whatever the technology might be. I mean, even transportation, right? Could be, uh, we could, that's a technology. Um, and, yep. and I just wanted people to start thinking about how we see that play out in the workplace. How does that affect us? How do we sometimes play into that notion that, you know, tech is supreme to everything and could do no wrong. Um, and, um, and, and primarily it's, this is a, this is actually like a theory or, um, yeah, just a theory that I've been tossing around in my head around supremacy and the different types of supremacy, uh, supremacy, uh, systems that harm, you know, they harm victims, but then they're, they also uphold abusers. Mm -hmm. And where do we see where, like, you know, each of us, we have a role in that, particularly as UX professionals working in and with tech companies, where do we sit in all of that? And and so that was a question that I was just trying to, I just wanted to pose to the people at the conference, hear what their thoughts are, what they've seen happen. Um, and then I suspected that we all have stories <laughs> where we've seen this happen. 
Um, and um, so I just wanted to get, you know, create a space to get that out into the open. That, that and and that was, right. it was an experiment. <laughs> I'll have to say it was, it was a very interesting experiment. I'm actually thinking of doing more of those sessions and, and how to do that uh, to get more people in our field, particularly to think about it. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll say it, it really depends. Oh, okay. Let me, let me think about this. How do I want to say this? There is a cultural aspect to tech supremacy. We grew up <laughs> surrounded by technology in some form or another. Mm-hmm. We've all been swept up and caught up in the latest wave of technological advancement. Um, and there really is no getting away from it per se, right? We, we, we participate in some way and we benefit in some way, right? And that's what keeps systems of supremacy in play and intact is when enough people support it, um, enough people are willing to give abusers the benefit of the doubt. They're willing to be sympathetic to those abusers. Yep. Um, and they're also willing to turn a blind eye or to not, uh, to look the other way, right? When victims of that system are harmed and be like, oh, well, you know, it's cause you did something wrong, right? The, right. Then that's where the blaming and shaming comes in, right? And, and if you think about it, um, like, like I said, you know, all systems of supremacy work in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can hopefully start to see how this plays out not only in technology, but, you know, just think about all the other supremacist uh, <laughs> uh, issues we're facing in current day politics <laughs> right around the world. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm actually, I'm trying to think of what, I, I think this would be maybe a more interesting conversation to hear from a group of people in some other format like what those examples are that come to mind um, yeah. for people in a, in a personal way. Um, but Darren, do you have anything, any, does anything come to mind for you when it comes to tech supremacy in particular? It, it does. The first thing that comes to mind for me when I think about tech supremacy as it pertains to UX is today's proliferation of dark patterns. It's it. There's technology that we're dealing with. We're in a position where if we if we demonstrate the empathy that we should, when we are user centered instead of stakeholder centered. Somebody just said that recently. I didn't come up with that. I love stakeholder centered design as a concept because that's a lot of what's going on today. That a lot of product design. That's what it is. It's stakeholder centered design. It's not user centered design. And I went. I got my shareholder. <laughs> yeah, that say, too. Yeah, shareholder-centered design. That too. Yes. <laughs> I went and got my car wash today. Didn't know it was going to come into play with this. I pull up. You can put your credit card in. Slip, uh, slide in. Pick your wash. Whatever. This interface was designed in a way, and I even said it, and the person, the attendant, didn't know what I was talking about. I said, this thing is full of dark patterns. I started, <laughs> I'm trying to get my car washed and I'm doing UX work and evaluating because 
I had, I could not figure out how to pick my car wash. But if you went the way that it appeared you needed to go, you ended up signing up for a monthly car wash membership. So the dark pattern was it cast this web and it, it that whole bait and switch type of thing where, okay, I just want a wash. I, I want to get it waxed today because the pigeons have had a field day on my cars. I need to get my car washed. I don't know, like a sign said, poop on me, something. So that's what it seemed like. So I want to get my car washed, but I can't. I, I ended up calling for the attendant because I can't figure this out. And, and the way that it, when I pressed on one thing and put my card in, it was taking me down some road and it's, and it was talking as if I was signing up for something. I'm not signing up for anything. I just want that $13 wash. I don't want a $24 a month membership. Then, then they tell their people to come out and try to sell everybody. I said, you, you want, don't you want to get the membership? You know, if you sign up, you get two free months. So everything is geared at, everything is geared at trying to get as many people to sign up. They probably get a bonus or a, a, some extra money when people sign up. I said, no, because I'm not going to get any value out of it. You get two months free, free doesn't move me <laughs> at all. I just want a car wash. Can I just get a car wash? And, and then she finally, she pushed the buttons and she knew how to get through it. Uh, but I could not figure it out. So here's this thing where the people who have the technology have the power. The people who have the technology have the power. And they're exercising tech supremacy by just as it with, with other types of supremacy, people are in power, they control things, and they are void of empathy, completely void of empathy. And they do their thing. And until somebody gets up and stops them or stands up or calls it out, it will continue going that way. So, yeah, so that's the example that come to mind for me. Yeah, and actually that is a very real thing, right? That the more power someone has, the less empathy that they have for others, right? So yeah. that that there's a catch-22 there, right? We all want to be wildly <laughs> successful million billionaires or, or whatever it is, but, you know, there there is a, a, a downside to that. Yep. Right, in our in our ability to empathize and have compassion for other people, and I first learned about this research in um, Andrew Yang's book Forward, because he he's all about okay, how do we think about or rethink about democracy to actually be really about and for the people, yep. and you know not let it be hijacked by people who want to just control everything yeah. and you know, sort of force them, literally force their way on everybody else. And, and the other thing that I'll say about that, about supremacy is there's also um, one of the biggest, but most invisible byproducts of supremacy is erasure. Mm, yep. So think about yep. that. You know, Darren, think about that example that you just gave about the car wash, right? Like you couldn't make heads or tails of how to just get the thing that you needed done. Yep. If it were not for that attendant that happened to be there, like <laughs> can you imagine, right? If you were in a situation, no one was there to help you figure it out. How are you going to get that car wash? You, <laughs> you, you probably <laughs> just, exactly. And, and that is that unfortunately, is what has historically happened with every 
wave of technology technological advancement we've left people behind yep. and and that was in andrew yang's other book the digital the divide. yeah we leave people behind yep. and um but you know in the name of quote-unquote progress, progress. Right? <laughs> and then we have to think about well progress for who really <laughs> and, yeah. and who not for <laughs> right um like these are all invisible well invisible to those of us who are lucky enough mm-hmm. for now to be on the winning side of these systems yep um just consider those folks collateral uh, damage yeah. <laughs> right and and but hopefully as ux professionals we're able to extend our skills and empathy and compassion mm-hmm. for end users to to see these things that are happening yes yes um, we have two topics left, but we're running out of time. Right. So I'm going to I'm gonna call out one more topic, and we'll save the other one for another time. Sure. Uh, and so today we're going to wrap up by talking about UX leadership. Uh, and specifically, the question is, the rhetorical question, which you're going to answer, it's not very rhetorical. It's rhetorical for a moment. Where in the world is the CXO? Where is the chief experience officer? So take it away, Karen. Yeah, so um, my understanding, having just trying to <laughs> do a little bit of research on my note, my own on this topic, um, is that they're given, given the establishment of our UX industry and how old our industry is now, you would think at this point there would be more prominence in this role at companies, right? That the more and more companies would realize, hey, you know, our systems, our products are becoming more and more complex. Um, We need someone to be accountable for making sure the experience overall across all of our channels, all of our products make sense and are consistent. you know, because all of, all of these things affect our reputation and our brand as a company and the way people engage with us. Um, so the what I wanted to say about this and what I was hoping uh, to give a talk about this at um, Debbie Levitt's uh, Concentric Conference um, was to talk about my own experience having had that title at a SaaS uh uh, pre a seed stage SaaS startup mm-hmm. uh, where I was able to have that oversight on our, on our entire product portfolio, including everything that was all of our back office systems, anything, anything that anyone touched and that we had to build ourselves. Um, <clears throat> I was able to take a very human centered approach to prioritization and figuring out, okay, well, what, who are the different audiences and what, what is the need? And to, to look at it from the overall experience of the entire company's product portfolio inside and out. So I was very lucky to have a little sort of a little bit of a peek into that um, and including how we made decisions to fix or not fix or to build or not build certain features um, also based off of what is the experience when we don't, when we choose not to do something, 
uh, due to limited resources. What what is the experience otherwise for end users, uh, our B two C end users? If we can't resolve the issue for them in a techno like with technology, right, with a technical fix, um, wh- how else do we make things right? How else do we reconcile the problem? Um, and then continue to keep track and monitor, you know, is this a growing problem? Is this affecting more and more people? And then therefore requiring more and more urgency to prioritize or, or not. Um, and what I learned uh, from this and, and my hypothesis now for why we have not seen more and more CXO roles is because most companies might not be at that level of complexity yet. Like they're not feeling the pain point mm-hmm. yet. They're well, okay. I, I won't say that they're not feeling it. I don't think they're aware <laughs> of their pain point. It's, it's one of those situations that people are so used to doing things in a particular way. And just, you know, we're, the thing about, the thing about usability and why I say like usability is a myth right, is that the, the truth is, as humans, we're actually very highly adaptable creatures um, and as a species, right? We can bend over backwards for a, a lot of different things, whether or not it's harmful to us right? <laughs> is, is a separate question. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can. My, my point is we can absorb a lot of uh, negative <laughs> um, design, Right, it is. It's bad design. We can absorb it. We can deal with it. Every time I go, (laughs) just to give a crass example, every time I go to um, a restroom that has like the motion sensor flush, (laughs) and it flushes when I don't want it to flush, but and yet I have no control over it. Right. Um, Am I in a position to say no? I'm gonna avoid using this bathroom. No, I just, I have to deal with it. I have to make do, right? I'm not gonna, (laughs) you know, go searching another 20 minutes when I need to use a bathroom to to use this bathroom. Um, So we will, we, as humans, we will put up with a lot. Uh, So what I suspect is that there actually are a lot of pain points that companies are feeling as a result of all this complexity, particular, particularly if you're a company that has B2C and B2B products, right? If you're a multi-sided market uh, business model, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is actually a very critical issue um, that I've seen get uh, sweeped under the rug, swept, sweeped, swept. (laughs) (laughs) One of those. (laughs) Um, and, And oftentimes, uh, what happens in that particular case is that you have one, either the B2C, the B2C side uh, pillaging the B2B side or the B2B side pillaging the B2C because because the model itself is not balanced. Right. Um, so so I, I think we will see a greater and greater need for this. Um, the wise companies <laughs> that are in the multi-channel, omni-channel, multi-sided market space, right? With with lots of different digital channels. So like if they have, you know, you have the native apps, you have, you know, the the website, the .com, you maybe you have um, IoT devices as part of, you know, a, 
a channel, a service um, channel delivery system, right? If I think these companies are the ones who should be looking more closely at the pain, the pain points that they are dealing with due to the complexity of all these different systems and different audiences that they have to serve at the same time. Um, so my hope is in getting this message out there more and more that more companies will start to wisen up to the fact that, okay, they really do need to invest in looking into a CXO role specifically dedicated to looking at and being accountable for that experience holistically. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. I hope we start seeing more of it. Um, but we're approximately 20 years in on this, on this trip, technically 25, about 25 years in going back to the IA days, not going back to Don Norman's days because it wasn't, it wasn't adopted. User experience practices were not that, not that um, popular or the, the need wasn't, wasn't acknowledged until the late nineties and the dot-com bust, I like to say is what really, when things really started to explode after that. So, so I, I, I constantly say that we're roughly 20 years, 20 years in. And so, yeah. And, and until UXers start to communicate, I, I call it speaking exec until we start to speak in the terms that leadership understands, instead of always using our terminology, it's going to be an even slower trek. So, um, so I, I wish people, I talked about that in, at an event in California back in 2015, 2016, I spoke at the UX strategy summit and I brought that up and, and, uh, you know, haven't, haven't seen it happen very much <laughs> since then. Yeah, so. which is- <laughs> Which is surprising, but also concerning, right? Because I have a feeling what's happening is some of that erasure that we were talking about, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so invisible, it's easy to just look at the data and be like, oh, well, you know, and there's more clicks or <laughs> more people are spending more time in the app. That's a good thing, right? But, but again, the what, you know, it, without really understanding the why behind the what, it, it is very easy to fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, well, more is better, right? Yeah. But, but the reality is, is like, well, people are just lost in her app or they can't figure out what to do. That's why they're <laughs> spending more time, right? Or you're entrapping them, like yeah. we were saying earlier, with the pictures and the visuals, yeah. when and at the end of the day, it has absolutely nothing to do with what people are really trying to accomplish. Yep. Vanity, um, vanity so, metrics are ruling yeah. the day. Uh, people are misdefining UX, redefining UX, uh, trying to oversimplify it, fill UX roles with people who have absolutely no idea what they're doing and no interest in even getting better uh, at, at, at what they're doing. I actually had a, uh, an engagement with Lou Rosenfeld today uh, on LinkedIn, one of the authors of the Polar Bear book, and he was talking about the certain state of what's happening with UXers in Nigeria, specifically called out Nigeria and and I responded, I I thought I should chime in. And I said, the interesting thing about what he said, I wished him well. I said, I hope you do a good job accomplishing some things, accomplishing some things with these people, because I've actually been interacting with people around the world for the past 11 to 12 years. Many of them have been in Africa. Uh, But the thing I called out was the same things that you listed your bullet points 
those same problems are here in the states too. That you, we're not further along than I, the same problems that we talk about. If we go to a coffee house locally and talk about some of the challenges being faced in UX, I can talk to people in Germany, Scandinavia, South Africa, Italy, Texas, <laughs> Japan. You you name it. Everybody who cares about UX and is really trying to do the right things in UX, and even people that aren't, people that are brand new, everybody's talking about the same exact issues, whether it's he talked about the people that are so, that jobs are so scarce that they're basically engaging in character assassination to get to get jobs. They're, they're willing to step on other people in order to get ahead. I'm going, that happened to me, you know, so... <laughs> That's I wasn't I wasn't in Nigeria. It happened to me. So and and I don't know if anybody reading that is going to catch what I said. But and, and I will say this too. And I love all the pioneers, but the pioneers were not vocal about this, about these things that are now an issue. And when I first started saying that UX was under siege in 2011, everybody told me that I was crazy and told me to shut up. And now what are we dealing with? The, the offspring of the siege. The, the siege was a seed when I called it out. Now it's several trees and the fruit is falling everywhere. And, and so, and now, we, we're now we're in a position where we have to counter what's being done. We, we're not just identifying it anymore. We have to counter it or the same thing that happened when I was in instructional design is going to happen to the UX. I'll be retired and gone and over there sitting in a, in a, in a rocking chair somewhere saying, see, I told you. Because I won't be here to deal with it. <laughs> I keep telling people, but we gotta, we gotta, and I'll, I'll get you uh, close up with the closing remarks here. We'll, we'll wrap up here. I just wanted to, yeah, no, I just wanted to add to that, right? Like, um, I, I didn't haven't seen these comments on LinkedIn yet, but if we're the same things are true in the U.S. if we're willing to be honest. Yes, there you go. <laughs> like and. And the fact that we're not always willing to be honest mm -hmm. is an indicator to me that there's another type of supremacy happening here. Bingo. Right. And then namely <laughs> a, some combination of American tech <laughs> supremacy, right? Yes, that, you know, we think the problems that we see in other countries are because they're not American or they're not us or like, or somehow we're, we're somehow better, but, uh, you know, but the reality is we're, we're not better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're just not willing to take a closer, harder look at ourselves. Yep. Reminds me of my, my medium post about the nail in your tire. There's a nail in your tire. And, and lately I've, I've enhanced that there's a nail in your, you have a Lamborghini. And there's a nail in your tire. If you don't take care of that nail in your tire, there is a possibility that you're not going to be able to celebrate that Lamborghini for very much longer or anything else for that matter. Very much longer. If that tire blows and you're on the freeway demonstrating how fast your Lamborghini is. If there's a nail in your tire, it is critically important that, that we identify it where and, and look for the nails. I'm looking for nails in the tire. So in my own life, in my own career, so that I can tend to it. And, and a lot of people, when you point out nails in your tire, you're the bad guy now. 
because you showed somebody there's a nail in your tire. So yeah, people do need to be honest, which is which is sad because ethics. Well, it's comical. Yeah, the the more I, I look, think it's comical. <laughs> it is. That's why I made a comic strip now talking about all these same things. Yeah, there, there you go. It's like it's like being it's like well, how could I possibly have a nail in my tire? I drive a Lamborghini. That doesn't happen to Lamborghinis. It's like it, like right. <laughs> that would be Lamborghini supremacy to think that something as basic Bingo. of a nail in your tire but that happens to everybody like can't possibly happen. Yep. Like you're just yeah, that, that's just beyond. Um, <laughs> Beyond denial at that point. Yes, and that's another key word. There's a lot of denial. And what am I denying? Help me to see what I don't see. Um, there's always a blind spot. It, it, it doesn't have to be glaring, but there's always something. But the more you look for it, the better of a chance you have that you'll find it. And and when you find it, then now that you know what it is, now you can find a remedy for it. Maybe Maybe it is a nail in your tire. Maybe there's a leak in your radiator. You know, maybe your brake line is, maybe you have a leakage in your brake line, you know, whatever, using the, sticking with the automobile metaphors, but how many times have we had something wrong with our car? We don't, until we take it into somebody who knows, we never find out what it is. We just know that it's not performing the way that it should. And, and, and all those metaphors lend themselves to us tremendously. So I, I, I encourage people all the time. I know we're going we're gonna to wrap up here. I encourage people all the time. That EQ thing, it's so critical. We got to be as self-aware as we can possibly be. Not like when I, I delivered a talk on emotional intelligence and a riot ensued at the end of it. Because it was a room full of people that didn't want to be aware that there was a nail in their tire. And they got mad at the messenger, so they wanted me hang, they wanted to hang me from the streetlight pole and it was done and accused me of pushing books because I was getting commission from Amazon and getting I don't get commission from books off Amazon. I recommended the books because if you want to learn more about emotional intelligence, here's some books I recommend. You must be getting paid. You know, this they were just they wanted me dead. By, by the by, by, just and, and these are people say that you extras. You can that was the thing I almost forgot. Ethics is at the core of this discipline, I found out. At a certain point in my career, I found out ethics is at the core, especially when you consider the fact that no matter what work you're doing, who you're doing the work for, there's always one person or a group of people that either do not trust you or do not see your relevance. And it's it's not the wireframes that are going to get you a seat at that table. It's not your, your, your prototypes. It's not your research. It's your ethics. <laughs> that's that's what's going to win them over eventually and and so when i realized that i i just exalted ethics from a standpoint of of doing this work that when you have to earn trust ethics is at the core of that when you want people to listen to you and give you a seat at the table Ethics is at a core of that. They're not going to give you a seat at the table because, oh man, your portfolios or, or your 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 uh, prototype sure was great. No, you won them over because you did something relevant and you respected them. A lot of things tied to ethics. So that's what I found. And and if you can't, if we can't face who we are, there's an ethics problem. If we want to engage in character assassination, there's an ethics problem. And and when you want to sit up there and you know that you only have five minutes of U.S. experience, but you want to 
somebody told you to go out there and make yourself heard, so now you're trying to develop a following? That's not ethical. That's not ethical. <laughs> Stop yeah. trying to get people to, I told somebody a couple of weeks ago, if you're telling people about Jacob Nielsen's heuristics piece, don't extract his thoughts, put it together with your visuals, mention him at the end, and then uh, and then also say, hey, if you make sure you don't miss anything that I share, make sure you follow me. This was all about you. And I told the person, this is all about you. And the person kept dancing around and coming up with a bunch of excuses. Well, I did mention Jacob Nielsen. Dude, when you do things, you mention, when you say something that somebody else said to avoid plagiarism, you cite the source on the spot, not at the end. You cite it on the spot. You are the star of this presentation. Jacob Nielsen is not. I said, why don't you just send him a link to the, to the post about it from his site? Wouldn't that be fine? Hey, I found this great. Hey, check this out. No, because you had to be at the center of it. And the person kept making excuses. I block people in a heartbeat. When, when I see somebody's not ethical, I'm done. I'm done. Because you can't get through to those people. So, anyway, that's my, my closing rant. What closing rant do you have? <laughs> uh, no, actually, as you... As you were sharing that example, I was like, oh, is, is UX bootlegging a term? <laughs> like, that's good. Like this, I Let's mean, it, it sounds like that's what people are, some people are taking upon themselves to do. Mm -hmm. um, but is that really, I mean, is that really what you want to be about at the end of the day? Is right. that what you want to be known for? Right. That, and that I would hope the answer is no, but if you're looking to make a quick buck, then they maybe that is your answer. Um, but yeah. you know, I mean, to each their own. Um, but then I would challenge that person to think about, well, is this even what you really want to be doing? Yeah. Maybe you should figure out what your real passions are and go do that instead. Yeah. Instead of <laughs> work. Yeah. There's a lot of them want to be celebrities. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but good stuff. As always, I think we both went a little longer. I think we uh, neither one of us thought we were going to go this long, but but it's, it's always great to speak to you. Thanks again for sharing. Again, we'll, we'll cover that other topic another time. Maybe we spend another whole show talking about it, just that one thing, because that's a big topic, the other thing that you mentioned. But mm -hmm. folks, if you're not already connected to or following Karen Lynn on LinkedIn, connect to her out there. You can find her stuff out on Medium as well find people like karen that have something worth listening to don't just embrace people because they're talking about ux because a lot of people are talking about ux and they're selling snake oil and they're going to do it at your expense so connect to people that really have your best interest at heart and they don't see you in their pocket <laughs> because that's what a lot of people are doing but uh, i mean we keep saying it not too many people listen to us, but that's okay. If only a few people listen, that's fine. That's fine. So, and we will yeah, live we with that. One person, if we convince one person per <laughs> per time that we have <laughs> record these conversations, that that's you know that's fine in my book. 
and absolutely um and Darren thank you so much for being that voice of reason and putting yourself out there like tirelessly I don't know how you do it but uh, <laughs> thank you for doing it because then I feel like you know I don't have to do it as much um but I am I'm, I'm trying I'm trying um but you know I, that's great that you're you're putting yourself out there and getting the message out there and um, helping the rest of us navigate our way. God knows there's times I've wanted to stop and I just can't. I have tried and I just, I, I didn't, I see things. I'm like, I'm, I saw instructional design destroyed. I witnessed it. And today instructional design is a, how do I always put it? Uh, it is a semblance of its former self. Only a shell. That's that's it. It's only a shell of its former self. You ever been to a training session and walked away and said, I didn't learn a single solitary thing? That's because instructional yeah. design, it got bastardized back okay. in the early 2000s. And, and when that started happening, it, it became nothing. So now... It's 2022. Any of you out there, have you ever been to training and, and you're like, but we weren't trained. All the person did was read PowerPoint slides or we didn't really, I, I heard them talking, but I didn't really learn anything. That's because instructional design is, it's gone. You know, it, 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 there are a very few people that still practice it, but most don't. UX is headed in the same direction. If people like me, people like Karen, people like Debbie Levitt, people like Dr. Nick, the people like Joel Barr, people like Tony Moore, there are people who care and represent the discipline, Dr. Giles Morrison, people who uh, who represent the discipline properly. And, and there's not that many of us. <laughs> we are in the gross minority. Uh, we say something on LinkedIn or social media, it doesn't get traction. Not really. Even when it gets traction, it doesn't get traction. Somebody else will say something completely ridiculous and, and they'll get like 10,000 likes and they said nothing. So that's the problem we have. Uh, so we'll, we'll continue to, as I like to say, try to get the water wheel to go in the other direction, do whatever we can. Uh, but again, I'm not doing even doing this for me because by the time we get somewhere that'll be worth having arrived at, I will have retired. So I'm not doing, I'm not even doing this for me. But people don't even realize that. So it is what it is. Well, the lesson, I think the lesson here, just to close us out, is doing the ethical thing is never the easy thing. Bingo. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, how you, that's how you know you're doing the ethical thing, right? Because <laughs> if it were easy... <laughs> If it's yep. too easy, then that should already be like a hint that it's it's probably not ethical. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, folks. But thanks again, Karen. We appreciate it. That is all Thank the you. time we have for today, folks. Uh, so until next time, this is Darren Hood, host of The World of UX. Wishing everybody the best. Happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.